standard issue for all women. Hello there, Mickey here. Welcome to one of two Sunday Chops. And we gave you a flick in, leave it, yesterday. You are welcome. Over on the other Chops, Jen chats to Ashley Dotty Charles, who tells her that while we might all be angry at the world, um, yeah, if you don't pick your battles, you can't win the war. The broadcaster and writer chats about her excellent and much-needed new book, Outraged, Why Everyone is Shouting and No One is Talking, about the difference between productive and not-at-all-helpful indignation, and how some people have built a career from being outraged. And on this one, you're about to hear the full conversation I had with the awesome Terry White about her debut book, Coming Undone, a memoir. It is an extraordinary book that deals with child abuse, alcoholism, mental breakdown and much more. Terry and I also talk about kids growing up in poverty and how that's still very much a reality now, why trauma shouldn't always be described in euphemisms and metaphors, how her view of success has changed and why the fuck she decided to record her own audiobook. Mad woman. Coming Undone is out now and it really is an astonishing read, but you'll understand more when you hear Terry talk. So I'll give over and let's get to that. Hello, I am joined on the phone by Terry White, award-winning journalist, editor-in-chief of Empire and Pilot TV magazines and author of Coming Undone, a memoir. Terry, hello. Hello. Thanks very much for joining us. Although, you know, I've just about stopped crying. I read Coming Undone in one sitting and then couldn't really do much else for the rest of the day, to be honest with you. I'm so sorry. It starts in New York. You've got what ostensibly looks like a dream life, but on the first page, you're being discharged from a psychiatric unit. And it's the story of someone who looks so, so put together, unravelling and then trying to find pieces to put back together again. Please, can you tell us a bit more? I actually started writing this several years ago and it didn't start as a book. It started as a challenge from a friend when I came out of the psychiatric ward. He said, why don't you start writing 50 word stories? Because I was in AA at the time. I wasn't drinking. I was trying not to go out and I had a lot of time on my hands and was kind of trying to deal with the aftermath of being in hospital. And he just said, just start writing 50 word stories. It's kind of something to give me to focus on I suppose and what came out of that was stories about being in hospital stories about my mental health over the years I'd had mental health issues since being a child and then kind of digging into my childhood and from that came the book Coming Undone which is essentially a story of ending up in hospital in New York after having spiraling mental health problems with drink and drugs and essentially the story of how I got there and what caused that. So the childhood trauma that kind of led to this final moment in New York where kind of everything unraveled quite spectacularly. Obviously, it spans your life and it takes in poverty, abuse and your sense of self just completely slipping away from you. Mm. That was really important to me because I think, you know, a lot is spoken about about the consequences of abuse and trauma And I think it was really important for me to understand how that shaped the woman I became and how it gave me this quite fragile sense of self that was always slipping out of my grasp. And that in those years in New York completely deserted me at one point. I became quite, you know, disassociated from who I was. And that was one of the hardest bits. You know, really, I think at the heart of the book is a struggle to kind of have a sense of self, keep hold of it. How do you have a complete sense of self when 
you've undergone those kind of things Mm -hmm. and how you try and build one through career through all of these outward things that you think are going to give you that magically but it actually doesn't and what happens when you don't find it where you think you should yeah exactly that you are fiercely magnificently successful and you've always had that fire in you when we first met when we were baby journalists back in our very very early 20s fresh out of university in our first magazine jobs one of the first things I remember you saying to me is I'm going to be the editor of a magazine before I'm 30 I want to be the next Tina Brown and you know you fucking did it well proud of you but do you think that was a case of I'm not going to be defined by struggle. I'm going to be defined by success. Yes, 100%. And I think that was, in many respects, what saved me for a few years, but also was as damaging as being defined by struggle in many Mm -hmm. respects, because I became so determined to leave that person behind. I used to kind of refer to to younger me as almost like a different person yeah and I would be like oh I'm not that person anymore those things didn't affect me I'm live a completely different life I have a professional job you know I sensibly a very middle class life and I thought if I could become really successful become known for, you know being hard-working or being talented or, or you know have these things that would say to the world that I had some value, then I'd find, as I say, myself in that. I think I I became very focused on achievements because I think when you go through those things, you feel like you're nothing. I remember uh, one of my mum's partners saying to me, you're nothing, you'll never be anything, you're worthless. Those things stick with you. And what you then decide to do, I decided to do, was to prove over and over and over again that I was worth something but the reality is that it's actually quite hollow because every time you get a new job every time you win an award or you achieve something else there's kind of this initial buzz and you're like yes I've done it and then it kind of wears off because it it can't ever replace those holes in yourself you can't stuff them with jobs and with salaries and with you know plaudits that that doesn't work all it does is give you a temporary sense of value but it doesn't really address the fundamental issues so in in many respects it becomes a hiding place more than anything yeah I think what happens to us as children clearly shapes us it absolutely shapes us but it doesn't have to define us but it took me such a long time to realize there's a huge difference between the two Mm. and being able to let go of the the thought that what happened to me as a kid defined me and and that is a struggle I, I absolutely recognized in coming undone as you say it's quite a binary thing right because you think the choices are it either completely defines who you are and you become stitched completely out of trauma or it has nothing to do with who you are and I think I was so determined for it to have nothing to do with who I was that I kind of went that's got nothing to do with me and actually what I had to accept was that it has informed who I am both positively and negatively and it is part of my story and it is part of my past and kind of trying to pretend like it didn't happen and completely shut the door on it and divorce it from me just drove it further underground and in in that case you know you you access it in the darkest of times and in the darkest of places and actually bringing it out into the light and trying to reconcile it with who you are in a much kind of healthier way is really the challenge. And I 
I definitely feel like that's much more of a positive way forward with it, as opposed to these two binary things of either it's everything to do with you or it's nothing to do with you. We go back quite a long way. And so we've chatted about aspects of your life and my Mm. life before. There are about a million lines that nearly broke me reading your book, but it's hard to live when you suspect your life ended at five. Mm. Yeah, that really got to me. My abuse started when I was six and I can absolutely trace back those feelings of not being lovable, not being worthy, Mm. sometimes feeling like I'm not even really here to that Mm. point. So it was heartbreaking reading it, but it kind of felt nice to feel recognised if that doesn't sound mental. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) It's quite often skipped over to like how a kid gets through this and becomes something else and becomes successful. But you seem to have found a way to have it alongside you. And obviously that has not been an easy journey at all. No, and it, it's been a long journey because, as I say, I was so intent on burying it and divorcing it entirely from me that all I all I served to do was to make it bigger, to make it bolder, but to, to hide it away in such dark places that, you know, it led me down a really dark path of, of trying to manage those feelings secretly. And that included, you know, prescription pills, that included self-harming, that included drinking, that included, you know, I didn't have much of a personal life for years because I wasn't able to have a functioning relationship, that's for sure. And I, you know, always said, oh, I don't agree with marriage. I've got no interest in having kids. And I think I I didn't feel safe within those things and didn't think I deserved those things. And I kind of rejected that life and just thought I'll be on my own and I'll have my career and that's enough for me. But I, you know, cut myself off emotionally from quite a few people. I, I became so self-reliant that I I proudly didn't need anyone, but more importantly, didn't want anyone. But I think that was all just part of a defence mechanism, which was, you know, all that's the path in which all darkness lies. And I don't feel robust or able to kind of deal with that stuff. So I'm just going to pretend it doesn't exist. But it's it's that's just an impossible path. And, mm-hmm. you know, but it's a path I was on for 30 odd years I'm 41 now and actually pulling it up alongside me as as you say that's only been something I've done in the last five years. When you talk about self-harm and you're incredibly candid about self-harm and Mm. I really hesitate to put it this way but almost like the positive thing of bringing the scars from the inside onto the outside Mm. so you can see them watch them heal sort of deal with them there's definitely that psychology there But also the self-harm with alcohol, finding that a solace and an escape route until it just wasn't anymore. Mm, And I think, you know, I wanted to be really honest about why people do those things, because I still think there's a lack of understanding about why people do those Mm. things. They're seen as just pure destructive things that you do when you're young. You know, there's a massive belief that self-harm is a teenage thing. It's an immature thing. It's something people get over booze you know it's seen as oh well you must be an alcoholic and I do go to AA and outpatient rehab in the book but what became clear to me was that these were all tools of self-harm because I was unable to deal with my emotions and with the trauma that had happened to me so whether it was razors on my skin whether it was taking too many prescription pills whether it was drinking alcohol All of these things served the same function for me, which was to anaesthetise, to escape. And that's the reality. And that's the thing that 
ties all those things together and people may not see them as linked initially but for me they were entirely they were all symptomatic of the same problem which is I wanted to escape from my past and my reality and the feelings and the memories I had when I was alone and they were all avenues to do that. I write in quite a lot of detail about all of those things about self-harming and about drinking because I think it's really important to write as specifically as possible. I think when it's something difficult like self-harm or like suicidal ideation or whether it's drinking, taking pills, whatever it is, I think people often write euphemistically because it's quite painful and quite awkward and quite, well, it's just quite horrible really to write or read that stuff. But for me, it was really important because anybody else who's been through this or is going through this you do not experience it euphemistically. It's like, it's the same way I've written quite graphically about the abuse I suffered, because our memories, we don't experience our memories metaphorically. So to write in, mem- no. in, in metaphor, to write in quite obtuse terms, to write in vague terms, I, I wasn't prepared to do that because that's not the reality of what it's like to suffer those things or to live with the consequences. And I think that makes it quite a hard read it certainly made it quite hard to write but I feel like that's the most truthful way of laying those things out for people because to cut away at the painful bit is to do a disservice to what I suffered and what millions of young girls and young boys also suffer. I couldn't agree with you more. I think in a lot of books about trauma, the sheer spill your guts messiness is absolutely skimmed over. Mm. But coming undone is visceral and raw and it's it's brutal. Mm. How hard was it to write that and revisit those memories and, and those experiences? I mean, I have to say it was pretty, it was pretty <laughs> awful. And, and people go, oh, was it super cathartic? I'm like, was it? Fuck. I mean, my <laughs> God. There is a truth in that I feel unburdened and I feel there is a liberation in there being no more secrets, no more hiding. But by the same token, it was so painful to write because you are sat down for several hours at a time and and your primary focus is to dig out these things that you've spent decades hiding from. Uh So you've buried them and you've buried them and you've buried them over and over and over again. You try to push them to a place you can't access. So going back with the kind of express purpose of resurfacing all that stuff is a really hard exercise. And it's an exercise you have to do completely alone. Nobody can help you with that. Nobody can, you know, work with you on that. And so you go to a very insular place and you know I made sure that I was kind of only doing it for a certain number of hours that I wasn't locking myself away for days and days and days that I was then you know going to the pub or going to the pictures or I was kind of cushioning it with stuff um to alleviate the intensity after because it's an incredibly intense process when you're taking that stuff out and you're trying to trace this line between what you experienced and where you ended up you have to kind of walk that path again entirely, you know, from when it first happened. But I think that was the only way to write the book was to write it completely honestly and in as much detail as I could remember. 
And even accessing the detail must be hard because our brains are so mm. clever and they hide stuff from us. And like you say, when you've worked so hard to put it in these boxes, like sometimes you'll get like what feels like a, a looking at a Polaroid or a snippet of film. They're not easily accessed. No. And I think memory is fallible, right? And memory, yeah, of course, your memory will be completely different to somebody else's memory of it. And I wrote just what I remembered. So if there was stuff that, you know, I'd been told in later years that I didn't remember at the time, I didn't include that. I was very careful just to include what I personally remembered. And I'm sure it's not the full story. I'm sure there's stuff that happened that I don't remember that isn't in there but I didn't I purposely didn't access my social services files I purposely didn't go and and try and find out anything I didn't already remember because for me the trauma is caused by what you remember and so going and learning something else at 41 that I then put into the book that isn't how the book should have been for me because I was trying to examine how I'd ended up you know, in this hospital in New York, having this mental health crisis, how I'd got there was the trauma I remembered, not the trauma I didn't remember. It was really an exercise in memory for me, trying to be as true to that memory as possible. And if I didn't remember something kind of saying that, if I was kind of unsure about something, being very clear about that, I think nobody has a perfect memory, but it's those, as you say, those snatches and those snippets and what you do remember they're the things that actually cause the mental health issues or contribute to the mental health issues. They're the things that you are trying to forget. They're the things you're trying to bury. They're the things that torment you. So I only wanted to deal in the things that were inside my head. It's important to point out that it is also a wonderful read. Your writing is beautiful. But I absolutely felt flayed having read it. But you've recorded your own audiobook. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> well, I didn't think that that was so unusual. So my, so my publisher was, was like, oh, do you, do you want to read it yourself? And we, I was like, no, 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 I'll do it myself. And then all my friends who, who know more about book publishing than me went, you're doing your own audio book. <laughs> and I mean, I have to say it was a very surreal experience because it was during lockdown. It was end of May. I went into a studio um, that was, you know, full social measures the producer was at home in you know something to share um he was staying <laughs> at his parents house for lockdown I was in the studio on my own oh my um, God. and so I'm you've got a producer down the line who bless him must have wondered what he let himself in for is it was like chapter 24 <laughs> really hard stuff. but um did it in two days yeah that was I have to say it's like one thing writing it by yourself sat alone and um, but when you're reading it out there's somebody on the line kind of recording it and making sure you're saying it okay and asking with two bits that was quite a, a tricky experience but also you know it's my story and I felt very weird about somebody else reading my words and yeah, it, it, it didn't feel like that would have been the right thing to do. So, yeah, I didn't hesitate for some strange reason. <laughs> Actually, I think the timing of this as well, when people are feeling a bit crazy fevered, but also Michaela Cole's amazing I May Destroy You. I think. Oh, my God. I think people are willing to watch something that's hard and to read yeah. something that's hard because you've both got that 
underlying dark humor as well which you know yeah i found myself giggling or smiling reading your book and then just going wow <laughs> that's that's amazing and the same with michaela cole there'll be just there'll She's be something incredible. that makes me cry and then something that i'm like that's piss funny that is very funny because that's how yeah. life is isn't it yeah it is i mean you know like some bits on the site board where it was like <laughs> funny the woman who put fucking tuna sandwiches down a pan like, what what is happening and like it is you know it isn't all unrelentingly grim like life moves between it being funny and being awful sometimes you know within a space of minutes that's the reality so while you know the tone was is obviously quite difficult in places I didn't want it to feel unrelentingly grim and to be like that kind of memoir porn where it's just like awful thing awful thing awful thing awful thing no levity at all You mentioned social services and reading coming undone. It doesn't feel so much like you slipped through the net, but that there was barely even a net there for you. As a kid, and then looking back on that time now, did you ever feel protected by the system? We had some contact with social services. They were called a couple of times um, to the best of knowledge from what family members have told me. But I wasn't aware of them kind of being a presence. And, you know, there was a lot of violence in our household we were in a women's refuge for several weeks in wales and um, as well as the sexual abuse that my abuser went to prison for so that you know there were events kind of happening throughout my childhood in our house and i wasn't ever really aware of there being us being cared for or the system really being involved that much i talk in the in the book about there was one point where I was struggling and we were sent for kind of family therapy you know, with the whole kind of two-way mirror thing and you know, but I don't you know I remember feeling like we were kind of fending and feeling quite vulnerable and feeling you know home was a very unsafe place and I was very anxious from an early age very scared all the time um you know, the men often changed. My mum was a single mum. My dad wasn't around. And those men kind of came and went, but each one often brought their own set of, you know, dysfunction. And so it, it was pretty much throughout my entire childhood and definitely until I was a teenager. But there was never any sense for me that there was support there if we needed it or there was anybody I could ever go to for help. Do you think things have changed now? You're very much uh, on Twitter vocal about kids in poverty and the, the mm. fact that they're ignored. We were both on there about the school dinners over summer fiasco. Do you think it has improved? Look at child poverty numbers now. It's an absolute fucking disgrace, uh -huh. like an absolute disgrace for a country like ours to have those levels of child poverty. And I think when you have a scale of child poverty like that because you know food banks weren't really a thing when we were kids no. that I remember that wasn't you know a thing that the country had to rely on or large proportions of the country had to rely on so I think when you have a scale of poverty that bad there is some correlation between you know um, people in in difficult socio-economic circumstances and incidences of violence and abuse and I think those households which are struggling economically and have a whole load of other stresses going on I think those families, to me, 
Um, and I'm no expert. I'm also, I don't work in that area. And I wouldn't want to kind of be seen to be criticising anyone that is. But I imagine that the demands these days with child poverty being so high must be extraordinary, must be extraordinary because you have, just have the basic function of, of kids needing to be fed, but also then never mind the physical welfare of those children, the emotional welfare of yeah. those children. I think it's, it, it, you know, it, I think it's extraordinary that we've allowed the children of this country, so many of them, to end up in that place. Following on from that, there wasn't masses of support for you as a woman dealing with the things that you were dealing with either. As an adult, do you mean? Yeah, as an adult. Yeah, I think, you know, I became quite skilled at hiding stuff, even when, you know, it, it spilled over. So when I would self-harm and it'd be quite public in terms of you'd be able to see it on my skin because I'd accidentally done it somewhere where you could see it when when I was wearing a, a short sleeve dress or something I think people find it quite difficult to ask about those things and to talk about those things and I became so kind of determined to put on a performance and to be as you said earlier you know have everything together be per outwardly successful you know have no kind of problems that it became really important to me to keep that public face as polished and together as possible. And I think if you really want to hide stuff, you can. And I think it, it, it takes a lot. It has to spill over in a very public way for people to kind of, at that point, be like, do you need help? Is there anything we can do? And I think especially in our 20s, when you think about it, we I turned 21 in the year 2000, mental health still wasn't massively talked about back then certainly not like professionally you know nobody at work I think there's a much better culture these days about companies taking responsibility or sharing the responsibility for their employees mental health and being vigilant about that but when we were starting out it was still very much like if you have mental health issues keep them out of the workplace it has nothing to do with you know coming in here every day and I think that's been a really positive change is the dialogue around mental health and around the fact that you can't compartmentalise it, that if you're having a, a mental health episode, if you're suffering from depression, that doesn't stop when you walk into your office every day. And, you know, it's, it's something to look out for and for managers to look out for and bosses to look out for, which is who are the people in your organisation who are clearly struggling and how can you support them? Is this part of the reason that you wanted to put Coming Undone out into the world? Actually, the biggest reason, I felt so alone when I was growing up. I felt completely isolated. I was chronically shy. I didn't have any friends. I felt so apart from the world. And I felt like I was the only person experiencing what I was experiencing. And I wish that I'd have found something that I'd have told me that it was okay, that it wasn't my fault, that I was worth something. And, you know, I'm very conscious that there are young girls out there who are suffering some of the things we suffered and are probably feeling so alone and so like everything they're being told, the people who are telling them that they're worthless, the people who are telling them that they deserve it, the people who are telling them that they're nothing, they are internalising those feelings and probably thinking that they aren't worth anything and that they're never going to be anything. You know, that's what I was told, you're never going to be anything. And I want those girls to know that they are 
something they are everything they can be anything they want to be that this will get better that things can be okay in the end and the people I had in my mind when I was writing the book was actually those girls and it obviously happens to boys as well but I have a, a, a very singular perspective as, as a woman and what happened to me when I was a young girl and how, you know, that violence happened to me at the hands of men. And those girls are, are primarily who I wrote the book for. I'm so, so glad you're still here. How are you doing now? So it's funny because the book, it's not really spoiler to say the book ends when I leave New York. It doesn't take into account really my life in the last five years. Mm. And that was a very deliberate choice on my part, because what I was keen not to write was your maybe a more traditional three act noir. You know, you get the brilliant redemption and resolution at the end and everything's happy and everything's great because the reality is that, you know, mental health does not work like that. Trauma suffers, abuse suffered and the consequences of that, you don't get kind of this shiny polished happy ending that's not how it works so you know what isn't in the book is is as you know that I am now in a relationship and that I have a baby he's four months old and you know that is unthinkable to me seven six seven years ago that is unthinkable I would never have imagined I'd I'd be in a relationship I would never have imagined I would have have kids I was kind of quite anti-kids because I was really concerned that I would be a bad parent Mm -hmm. that I would not be able to look after my baby that I would become a bad person that really kind of shaped my thinking which obviously again is all a a consequence of what happened to me but for me to get to that place I had to kind of do a lot of work on resolving the stuff we talked about earlier you know which is reconciling the fact that this did happen to me being more open about it with friends and with family and you know I I, practical things I had to do so I um I stopped taking prescription pills I massively cut back on drinking I tried I decided one day and it was literally as abrupt as this I decided one day I wanted to be here that I didn't want to die and that was the big way back for me because once you've made that decision then all of your daily small and big decisions are done to facilitate that instead of the opposite for years I'd been well I'm not really that fussed about staying around I don't really mind if I die so everything I did was kind of with that in the back of my mind and so just that mental shift means everything changes every decision you make changes everything you do you do in a completely different way so you know it's it's been a gradual journey for me to be a healthier functioning human being but you know the reality is that I will always suffer from mental health issues I will always suffer with the consequences of that trauma doesn't disappear overnight those things still happen to me But where I've got to now is that I can live with them. And before I couldn't live with them, it felt impossible. It felt unbearable. Now I feel like I can live with them alongside me, that I can deal with any pain and, you know, suffering I feel. And the biggest thing that I've kind of worked on getting rid of is the shame Mm. and the secrecy because the shame, the secrecy is what creates the shame and the shame is what keeps you in pain and it becomes this awful cycle and so 
you know, part again of writing the book is I refuse to be silent any longer and I refuse to be given this shame because it doesn't belong to me. It never belonged to me. It belonged to the people who hurt me. They can have the shame, but I'm I'm going to refuse now to carry that around with me. The guilt that comes with what happens to you when it, it, it isn't your guilt is just astonishing. It took me yeah. took me years to shift it. And actually a piece of writing helped me shift it as well, my writing. But yeah, mm. it's crazy how that sticks to I us. Know. I know. And it's, you know, it's, it's part of what makes what happens so incredibly powerful. It's what, it's what makes it so hard to get over is because it comes with all other kinds of feelings that grow and morph and change over the years in part of that is what makes you keep it a secret part of that is what makes you silent the, sh- the sheer shame and humiliation and guilt and all of those things you feel are all part of the abuser's toolkit that's what makes them be able to do what they do and, and you to be able to suffer it and I think until you can unburden yourself from those things and it sounds glib to say it and it it takes a long time and part of it is just saying to yourself even when you do feel ashamed it's reminding yourself that it's not your shame that it isn't your fault and that you know this thing happened to you but it doesn't stain I felt like I was stained for years I felt like I was kind of always permanently ruined in some way because of what had happened damaged goods yep all of that right all of that language that is around women and girls this has happened to in terms of you know you're ruined forever you're damaged goods and I always felt like that I always felt like from you know being a kid that was it I was marked in some way but I don't believe that anymore and I don't feel like that and I think part of other girls other women not feeling like that is transparency is honesty is being able to share our stories and show that life in all its infinite possibilities can still be wonderful it will still be hard in times just like everybody's is but it can be wonderful and it can be transformative and it can end up very 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 different to where you start out can i ask you what you think success looks like now has that changed yeah i suppose do you know what like i used to long to be happy I was really obsessed with being happy and I thought for a long time that I got my happiness through work that I got happiness through these kind of big exciting dramatic relationships that I I was always looking for those highs of life that I got externally and then probably a few years ago just before I met my my boyfriend you know, I was single, I was happy at work, I was feeling much more balanced, wasn't drinking, I wasn't self-harming. And I remember feeling, for the first time, content. And I was like, whoa, this is a fucking amazing feeling. This is better than happiness. Being content and being okay, and not it being a dramatic high or a dramatic low, feeling, getting up in the morning and thinking, everything's all right. I really like my job. I like where I live. I'm single, but I'm happy about it. I Just being content where I was was a completely revolutionary feeling for me. I'd never felt content in my entire life. I'd felt fleeting happiness. I'd felt ecstatic joy. And then I felt crushing lows. I'd never just felt good and content. And that, for me, is success. 
whatever else is going on in my life and I don't think a certain job means success anymore I don't think a certain relationship I don't think having kids I don't think any of those things in isolation I think it's whatever works for you whatever brings you that feeling of contentment and that's now what I kind of strive for and see as the the ultimate aim for me it feels sustainable in a way that happy doesn't. And I yes. think when you've had a life where you've you've lived on that edge, where it feels like everything maybe was already taken away from you or certainly could be taken away from you, mm. the fact that this is something that you can maintain without other yes. people is amazing. Yes. And if you lose one bit of it, you know, I, it used to be all in, right? So if I'm going to put everything into this relationship. And then when it falls apart dramatically, oh, God, it's going to be the end of the world. And when I'm going to put everything into this job, and then if that job goes wrong, it's the end of the world. It's actually, as you say, it's much more sustainable to have pockets of, you know, satisfaction and happiness in loads of different areas of your life. And then it's all, you know, if one of those things goes slightly wonky, then you've still got the others. It's it, it much more sustainable I remember I had counseling when I was 21 and the therapist said to me it's about pillars it's having enough pillars if you only have one pillar and that pillar goes then you're fucked because you're on the floor Mm -hmm. but if you have multiple pillars in your in different areas of your life and different parts of stability in different areas of your life then if one goes away then you've got the others to rely on and that made more sense to me 20 years later than it ever did when I was 21. <laughs> uh, I was like, what the fuck are you going on about pillars for? <laughs> Mine used to talk about jugs and water levels. And I was like, oh, uh, I'm just like, you know, if your jug is full, any drip from the tap is going to send it spilling over. But if you can just get your level so there's room for anything to go a little bit wrong, then you're liable to be able to cope with it better. And again, it ooh. makes much more sense now. Than, yeah, than maybe it did at the time. Jugs and pillars. <laughs> Jugs and pillars, it's what we need. Terry, Coming Undone is out on July the 2nd and available in all good bookshops. Yes, and some bad ones. And some bad ones too. There's no, no such thing as a bad bookshop, just Amazon. <laughs> no, quite, <laughs> quite. Where can people find out more about you, please? Because obviously you have got your finger in loads of exciting pies. Yeah, I am on Twitter, as, as I said to you, trying my best, you know, not to be so much anymore. But yeah, I am on Twitter at uh, Terry underscore White and at Instagram on Terry L White. And it's mainly just stuff about the book, me shouting about uh, injustices in the world and pictures of my cute baby. It's a good mix. I'm a big yeah. fan. <laughs> Potent mix. Thank you so much for chatting to me. Thank you. Standard issue for all women.